Okay, yep, that's perfect. This microphone. Is this on? No, is it on mute? Is it on mute? Oh, it's on, yeah. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barak lana bina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla wa anta tajlu al-hazna idha shi'la sahla, Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik ya rabbil kareem, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's always wonderful to be back in Finchley, which is now the, I think, the de facto home of LP when it comes to London. And we're so uh, happy and honored with the energy and the drive that the brothers and sisters in this masjid, in this community have to have this class back. And ultimately, that's what you always hope and wish for, to see that energy. So good to see all of my people uh, from trips and lessons and classes. And just may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect you all. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve you and your families. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow you always to benefit and to increase in knowledge and for that to lead to the best of consequences in this life and the uh, next. So alhamdulillah. Um, just want to make sure, Shaz, are you absolutely happy with the, the uh, thing? Does it sound better than being on just a phone? We are trying a few things out and um, hopefully the, uh, the system that we're using is great. There we go. Shazad Salim is happy, so then the world is happy. Alhamdulillah. All right, folks. So um, we're going to be doing um, starting the penultimate part of this particular section, but I'm going to um, also do something which I was requested in our Hajj group, and I thought to myself, you know what, that's a good idea, and how do I do that? I will need to bring up the study material, and when I do that, that's way too small, so let me think. Uh, huh? got the. Actually, I think I've got it here. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got it. So I'm going to read out the section that is pertaining to our uh, lesson, right? And then let's see how we uh, get on uh, with it. So this is now talking about, for those that this is the first time, obviously most of you have done logical progression or been parts of it or at least online or in person. But the particular section that we're on is the, the book of congregation the, uh, or the chapter on the congregation, obviously part of the prayer. And specifically, we're speaking about the imam and praying behind the imam and the specifics of the congregation. And specifically, what we're speaking about now are those things which, which are disliked. And the part that we're on right now is it is disliked for the imam to be elevated above them, the followers, the rest of the folks, to be elevated above them the height of an arm span or more without a, uh, a need. All right. When there is no need for that to, to happen. Or number two. For the Imam to lead in the prayer niche. And taq uh, here doesn't mean um, necessarily the mihrab, little small kind of uh, cove at the front, but something which is so encompassing that you can't see the Imam, so encompassing the illa here. The point that's being made here is that it's making it very difficult for the followers to see and hear and to follow. So that's the illa there so that you understand where, the, where, where they're coming from. The third, to pray a voluntary prayer in the same place he prays the obligatory prayer unless there is a need. 
right, unless there's a need, because of the lack of space, for example. But it's obvious why we don't want him to be praying a sunnah prayer right there, because it confuses people. Has a jama'ah started? Has it not? Have I just missed a jama'ah? Has it not? Just adding headache to the followers. And the imam, remember this always at the back of your mind, that the imam is being put in, uh, to amamun nas, as we said, in front of the people. He's your representative, and he is the best of you, right? He's always got to be the person that you have no hesitation in obeying, in loving, in respecting. When there's an issue, we go back to him. His like, uh, level of dhyana, religiosity, his wara, his everything is first class. And that's why everybody has confidence in that person. That's also why it is from the dislike matters to have an imam that people don't like. He causes fitna. I mean, let everybody argue with each other and hate each other, but don't be hating on the imam. And if that person is being hated upon, he probably, most of the time, unless there's some major first-class dhulm going on, probably if some people are not you know, in line with him, then there's, 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 you know, there's no smoke without fire, basically. Yeah? So keep that in mind that the imam being first-class has to think first-class. He has to be an intellect. He has to be. And you might remember these um, back in the day. I mean, it might, it might still be going around, but I remember it certainly when I was younger that this PDF used to get passed around I don't know if it's a fake or not, right? Um, but it was a famous PDF that translates from the original Turkish uh, an, an advert under the Uthmani Khilafa of the conditions, the job advert basically for an imam. Anyone seen that before? Yeah? It's a, it's a famous thing from back in the day. And it's a madness. Like, you've got to be a genius. You've got to be a polymath. You've got to be a Hafiz al-Quran. You've got to be expert in uh, social bloody blah, blah, blah. And you look down and you think that, you know, first of all, this person doesn't exist. And if they exist, he's on a million pound per annum, yani. You know what I'm saying? He's got to be first class and, uh, on, the, on, on the game of everything. At the very lowest level of intellect is to be aware of what the people need and want. And if you'd like, for example, know that you're in a, in a community where there's a lot of professional people or working people and you're banging out Baqara for, for, for Fajr, yeah? Then we need to just, you know, have a, have a talk, right? If you're a person who knows that you're in a very um, traditional old school community that, you know, um, if they hear uh, one uh, fa instead of a well because uh, they don't understand the difference between riwayat and qiraat and you're sitting there busting you know, Khalaf and Hamza or something like that, and my guy's thinking, you know, what, what, I don't know what's going on, my prayer's invalid, you know? You're just causing unnecessary fitna, confusion, trouble and strife. And the thing that you will start to see next week, right, when we start talking about those excuses which allow a person to miss the jama'ah, there's an incredible statement that uh, Sheikh Uthameen makes. I don't know whether we'll get to it today, but I want to say it so in your presence so that you understand. Everybody here knows if you're too sick to go to the masjid, it's a valid reason not to go to the masjid. You don't need to know, you know Islam at some high level to know that, right? But many of you would hesitate to think that the same level of excuse would exist for someone who is hungry and the food has been presented. I think pretty much everybody also knows there's a hadith flying around somewhere that if the food is there, then, you know. So you think, yeah. But then you'd find excuses. You'd be saying like, you know, if you saw a person getting food at that time, immediately you'd be like, why are you getting food at that time for? Couldn't you have done it half an hour early? Couldn't you wait an hour? But you make excuses. And, and, or you'd say to a person who says, no, I'm not getting jama'ah. I'm gonna, I've got a full spread out in front of you. I'm going to smash it. Right? You'd be looking down upon that person. And the irony is, as Uthameen says, alayhi rahmatullah, because it's a fantastic point. He goes, in the sharia, it is more important, the second one, meaning to make sure that you're not hungry or need to go to the toilet, 
than the actual, it's a stronger excuse to not go to the salah than the one uh, of being sick, too sick to move from your bed to attend the jama'ah. Because the, 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 the sickness, marad, as an excuse, is something which leads to the prayer. It's part of those things which establish the prayer. Whereas khushur and focus in the salah is something from the prayer itself. It's a component of the actual prayer. And there's no way that we can make the thing which establishes the structure of the prayer more important than the actual components of the prayer itself. Now, why am I making that point in this wrong place? I'm making that point which goes to show that the imam must be absolutely cognizant of what is on the minds of their musallin. And if he's leading a prayer and he knows that as a result of me reciting what I'm going to be reciting, I'm not doing it for the sake of them doing tadabbur over the ayat and uh, whatever, but I'm actually potentially risking them thinking about, you know, this is too long, I need to get off, right? Or um, my actions when I come in, they're confusing the people. You've got to be looking after the stability mentally, intellectually of the musallin as well. That's why to lead the prayer is a huge responsibility. You have to consider so many different angles. Anyway, anyway. So, that's number three. Number four, to prolong sitting facing the qibla after the prayer. But if there are women, but if there are women there, he waits for a little while so they can leave, or so that they can leave. And then it is also disliked for the followers to stand in between pillars that break the lines. All right. So, in this classic example here, we have a pillar right there. Okay. We don't have any uh, down there. Now, it would be in normal circumstances disliked. For us to intentionally, for example, be using this line as the prayer line because it's being divided up by a significant pillar. What you should be doing is I put the imam here and using that line there which is unbroken. And you do all of these things to get round the prohibition as much as you can until you realize you have no other space, you have another option and then it drops. Okay, that was basically, we finished this section last week. But the one thing that I didn't really kind of expound upon is this third uh, point. Uh, sorry, this fourth point that of dislike, that it is to prolong. It is disliked to prolong sitting facing the qibla after the prayer. Um, now, what we're talking about here is the imam who's finished his salah. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Astaghfirullah. 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 Allah manta salam and kasalam. He now gets into his whole dhikr kind of uh, a routine. Might even cross his legs, get himself comfortable. He's not turning around, not doing anything. We know from the Sunnah that the Prophet ﷺ told the people, do not leave until I have turned. Do not leave until I have left. Some scholars uh, 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 translated or understood in Saraf as turn around, but it actually means to leave, right? The idea being that follow my lead. But here more so that um, we have, and, and that's why the, 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 our author says, but if there are women there, he waits for a little so that they can leave. And that waiting part is the pause before turning around to face the jama'ah. The Prophet ﷺ would always turn around to face the jama'ah. Either he would turn to his left and turn around, right? And, and face them at like some kind of acute angle. He wouldn't like sit directly like I'm sitting directly in front of you. But he would like turn a little bit. Or he'd go around the other way. And so then he'd be facing generally like that. So like I would be, you know, I can see you folks over there, but I have to turn my head, but I'm that direction. So he would do one of the two. This action itself, him doing it, needs to be quite quick. That's the sunnah of the, 
of the Imam Because why? Because the people, number one, are not meant to leave until you turn around Why not? Because they've got to assume that your turning around is a release from the prayer Okay guys, you're good, you're done Why? Because the idea is that a person, the Imam, might be actually thinking that I've made some mistakes And you know he's got to do that calculation, I mentioned this last week Got to go through the kind of sums and the, you know, did I get it right, did I not? Might have some doubts, right? You might be thinking, I, I, by the way, I don't think that I'm, I'm not even using this, by the way. Right? There's no difference in the volume, correct? Yes. Right. I told you, Molvis don't need microphones, you know. So, um, so, whilst he's actually, you know, turned around that direction, and he's, you've got to assume that any moment he could turn around and say, guys, I've, I've added something, or... Uh, didn't do enough and let's do such that. When he turns round, it's now free, free for people to get up and go. So what, uh, what uh, the Imam al-Hajawi and all of the schools uh, uh, agree is that the Prophet why? Because of the, the, the narration of Umm Salama radiallahu anha, she said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi So as soon as the Prophet sallallahu would say salam alaykum salam alaykum rahmatullah Soon as he said that, the ladies would then get up and they'd be starting their adhkar, astaghfirullah, whilst walking out. Alright? Remember, small space, restricted kind of, you know, alleyways and the like, whatever. So much so that afterwards they decided to designate them a separate kind of entrance, right? Otherwise, initially it wasn't like that. They would have to people have to mind their way and, and the like. So, let them get out and the rush of that. And, and so she said, and he would remain in his position for a little while She states that And then she says We thought about that And Allah knows best That that was because To allow the women to leave This was Umm Salama's own opinion Right? So she states the fact Then she says How we used to see it We used to see it was a chance for us to basically get off Before the, you know, before the men start to get up and, and the like Alright, I did all this last week um, The question is I mean, at some point we should discuss this And we have, this is a topic I was speaking to Ijaz on the way here Should I really open this up or not? Um, that's been discussed to death And people make of it sometimes not enough And people make of it sometimes too much The concept of, why, or the issue of why Does the Prophet ﷺ delay and allow the ladies to leave? Now, Sheikh Uthameen I didn't bother uh, explain this last week, but he goes off on, like, off for two pages on the cuffs, hardcore. He goes, if you understand, this is our value, this is the way it is, absolutely separation between the men and women, absolutely no khair ever in the universe came between them mixing. Any idea that this is, is, is right and correct and the like is all from the kuffar and and then smashes the kuffar hardcore Then he back to the Muslims and says Any Muslims who try to justify the kind of the free mixing uh, And he, was, he uses the key word Al-ikhtilat And that's what it's all about Ikhtilat means to mix Right? Then that's because their brains have been you know, infected by that parasite of, of, of liberalism and the like And blah 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 um, And I want to mention this because this is always for every generation A topic that comes up and uh, causes fitna, causes confusion and so on So it's worth it that we have a little chat about that And try to understand, you know, certainly my take on it Certainly what the scholars have said about it I think that the most important lesson that you need to learn, right? Other than what the obvious points are about 
or, or the obvious, uh, what's the word, um, ethos. The ethos of the Islamic state of mind, the ethos of the community is a very clear one, right? That men and women, regardless of whether under marital union or not, have been imbibed with a number of hormones that make them t attractive to one another. That's something at the genetic level, and it cannot be pushed away. It is one of the most strongest feelings that a man or woman will ever have, and it can uh, lead to, obviously, much joy, lead to much harm, lead to much destruction, and you know all the rest of that. And Islam is no apologies, no holds barred, very, very clear that you all need to take personal responsibility for that, but we're going to ensure that the system is regulated. So ultimately, you know that whole discussion about when a woman gets attacked and she's wearing like next to nothing and it's his fault and it's his, her fault and it's shaming the victim and blah, blah, blah. All this is noise. It's all nonsense, right? It's a kuffar trying to, you know, either blame us or the people or whatever. Whoever steps, puts the wrong step here, they get blamed. Islam is actually really simple, right? Yeah, the woman is fully to blame for dressing like that and the man is fully to blame for what he did and everyone will be dealt with in the sharia. In the akhirah, they'll be blamed, they'll be dealt with. And in this dunya, whoever's done the actual crime and what can be done for, they'll be done for, right? And that's it. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to obviously know that there can any be, be any possible blame apportioned to the woman because she should be able to dress as she wants, etc., etc. So Islam obviously says, and we're not leaving it to you and your ideas. We regulate it. This is how they must act. This is what And then what happens after that, that's in the personal realm of responsibility for which you'll be held uh, accountable for. Islamic ethos is clear that the, less that, that the more that people become familiar with one another, attraction grows, especially between the genders. And so therefore, that needs to be uh, controlled as much as possible. And we then need to start to introduce artificial constructs to do that. And here is where the problem is. Here is where the scholars that have historically or in modern times, they fall over or they trip up, is when they start giving definitive, uh, exclusive terminology to this concept. They, where they say, intermixing is haram, ikhtilat is haram, or ikhtilat is completely halal. It's just not possible to do that. It's not possible to say that, because the Prophet ﷺ didn't set down a definitive, clear statement on the concept of ikhtilat. Because in his presence, there were women, and in his presence, as you just seen now, he would be encouraging the separation of women or to you know, avoid the, the, the mixing of women. So therefore, what you need to know, the class position. The class position is that intermingling or intermixing is all context-based, case by case, every time, and I don't mean just in a particular, you know, from a particular uh, uh, setup to a particular building to a particular outside. No, I mean even in era. I mean even in communities. I mean even ethnicities, I mean even different countries, I mean even in generations, everything matters, right? It's very different when, you know, 1400 years ago, there was no such uh, office structure that existed with women doing anything of uh, a male type of work, let alone 1400 years, even 100 years ago, actually, right? That, that would then, you know, uh, uh, have some kind of impact upon the ruling at the personal level or at the social level. Whereas today, you've got like, you know, it, 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 there's this weird kind of scenario where brothers like, you know, haram, uh, ikhtilat is haram, 
bloody haram. Sister walks into the masjid, right? There's one sister who just walked through the middle right now here, and he'll look around. Hey, said, you know, be going through uh, heart attack, and you know, uh, uh, it's a sister. Oh my God, right? Okay, and this is this is intermixing. This is absolutely haram. Blah blah blah. And you know, next day he's at the office. Hey, Lucy, how's it going? What's happening? Hey, Katie, what's going on? Yeah, give me a cup of yeah, two, two sugars like normal. Yeah, what the hell's going on here, bro? And this like this cognitive dissonance, right, is a problem. It, so, but that's him. But let's now be mature and step back. Is there actually, is it possible in fiqh to give rulings on the situation because it's different and every man is working with a woman and every woman is working with a man, therefore somehow we have to adjust our fiqh rulings? Can you imagine how dangerous that is as well? And that is actually a real challenge for scholars to be trying to be um, relevant, obviously, but for the scholars to be responsible and not allow the pressure of knowing that this guy, for example, is always working with women and therefore it's okay for that person to carry on uh, uh, doing that all the time. Despite the fact that there is absolutely no chance that a person can find from a fiqh point of view that telling Katie to put two sugars in and you get me one as well and listen, if you, if you don't mind, you know, get me this or do that and you want a hand and carry the table across with her as well, it's completely permissible. And speaking in a friendly and easy way is all permissible. The issue is, what will it lead to? What will then happen? Who's responsible here? What about the irresponsible folks? Are rulings only for responsible folks? Like for example, the, the scholar or the teacher, we spoke about the imam. I said to you that he's got to be, you know, obviously everyone makes mistakes, but he's got to be purer than pure, right? That person has a responsibility because often the lady will come and need fatwa or need to consult or need for advice. And so sometimes, um, no, sometimes, many times the imam or scholar or leader or whatever is put in a far more compromising situation than others. But that person is far more educated about these realities than others. They know very, uh, that, that, that scholar will know very well the nature of men and know his own limits. Whereas someone lesser than that will be ignoring those limits. And he'll be very, very much aware of how a woman, her demeanor changes, her conversation changes when you're speaking to that person and whether that conversation is going the right way. Men are, you know, I don't need to be speaking about gender dynamics. Every man knows this, every woman knows, uh, knows this. Women love to be courted and men love to be in a position of power. And when men are able to um, say things or do things or whether you would call it from chatting up to whether you call it to asserting presence or asserting dominance, it doesn't matter. The point is that for it to be recognized, for a person to know that their authority was recognized, that they've been recognized that they're funny or that they recognize that they are skillful, especially by a woman, also brings a real feeling, a positive feeling for men, which can very, very quickly lead to fitna. It's a responsibility of a leader and a scholar, and then by extension, highly practicing Muslims, right? With us making excuses for the lesser intellectuals, the lesser educated, but for educated Muslims, you've got to be aware of your impact upon women, for example, or your impact on your speech on other people, just generally, like I said to you about the imam position, so even more so when it comes to the gender. So there's going to be always exceptions. There's always going to be scenarios where um, the line is blurred, right? And here it is important that uh, uh, caution is a bedrock of our deen. So a more cautious approach is not some kind of sellout approach. It's not a weak approach from a fiqh. You know this idea where we, you know, some scholars would say that we make this meaning from the principle of closing the doors to future haram 
i.e. we cut this off right now, not because this thing is haram, right? But because we know that if we let it you know, out and let it happen, then in a, a little while, this will start to happen. We know and we've seen it before. So we'll cut the door up, we'll cut the, the, you know, the, the, the thing off from here and we'll close the door. This is a, um, I think this is something which should not be looked down upon light because it's always easy to look down upon the people who say haram, haram, haram. But sometimes that haram is being done in order because of their experience and what, they've, what they know from previous you know, realities, interactions, or because or they know from, the, know from the crowd, right? Or the kind of situation that, uh, that it's uh, in, uh, the, the context I mean, in which there's either control and then other contexts where there is no control. So the leader and the teacher will give different rulings different times. And that's what the uneducated from the Muslims don't get. And that's why they throw the card saying this person promotes free mixing, for example. Or this person is yani, ignorant, doesn't know what, you know, how to, the, 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 the rules are concerning men and, and women. So I want you to realize that there is nuance, right? There are, obviously, there's no nuance in, in certain things. Whenever this, the second that you realize that your interaction with the other gender is going down a direction and men will know and women will know. Men will know and women will know that this is now going down the wrong kind of thing. You've got to pull out immediately and you've got to now create that bird, that distance for the protection of yourself and the other person. Second part to that is the fact that you might not recognize your own. I must have said this story in LP. I must have. The Sheikh Haytham story on the bus. Anyone remember that story? No? Good. It's giving me an excuse to say it again because one of my favorite Favorite stories of all time, right? Um, uh, Maryam is saying that Sheikh Hatim al-Hajj, who's a fantastic scholar, by the way, fantastic scholar. If you don't know who he is, Google his name, Hatim al-Hajj. Whether it's his fiqh, he also teaches Hanbali fiqh. Whether it's his understanding of medical ethics, he's a doctor by profession, a genuine scholar, a, a, a wonderful uh, uh, analytical uh, mind. Uh, I haven't seen or heard from him for a while. But apparently he's been discussing that, so I'm sure that that would be um, uh, beneficial. Um, Sheikh Haytham, on this point, uh, being aware, right? He said that, uh, I'm talking about Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad, who's obviously from Yorans here in London. Hafizahullah, great guy. And he goes that, I was on a journey, I want to say Sudan, but I want to say Sudan, right? But it was in an Arab country, or, uh, or Arab African country. I can't remember where, but I think it was Sudan. Anyway, he jumps on the bus and it's absolutely rammed. Right? And he, uh, <laughs> I can't even say this story with a straight face. He is absolutely packed and he's like already calculated that this is a long journey and I can't be doing this whole thing standing up. I've got to sit down. And he does a quick view, quick survey of the whole uh, situation and there's no uh, free seat except one seat. So he walks over towards it and he sees from far off that there's some lady, older lady, you know, without getting specifics, lady that. He has one look at and he's like, right, there's absolutely no danger to me whatsoever, yeah, of me being fitnered, yeah, by, by my girl here, yeah. So he makes that assessment and he's about to sit down, then he stops. He goes, but I might be a fitner for her, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend, Yara Kassa, what a legend. And so he stood the rest of the way. He stood the rest of the way. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, jokes aside, it doesn't matter whether he is or not or whatever. I'm sure he is, mashallah, handsome lad, yeah? But 
the 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 point is there you've got to be aware especially as the more educated that you go and scholars and leaders they know these little things right they although frankly i don't want to kind of somehow make this some kind of secret botany knowledge every man knows this and every woman knows this that's why women are so um it's fascinating i remember reading an article such a refreshing article you know obviously articles on hijab and uh what, what, what are you What's, what's the, the cliche? The, the jewels that must be covered or the jewel that must go in. You know that rubbish, yeah? You know, and it gets so boring and so pathetic, right? But it's that, that cliche which some people connect to, right? And whenever you see hijab, it's called delete, delete, delete. But I remember coming across one recently, I say recently, last few years, where the, 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 the title was something like, by a non-hijab wearer, she was like, um, yeah, I struggle to wear the hijab. And all of you know why as well. And it was just like that, right? And this whole article didn't at all question anything to do or wasn't even trying to promote the hijab in any way. It was her just being so clearly honest, representing what the vast majority of women basically feel is incredibly difficult for them to do. They were born more beautiful than men. That's yani, from a genetic point of view, right? Physically, they were. Clearly, when you compare the, 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 the looks and the physical structure and how a woman is obviously biologically completely different, but um, it's all intentional changes that have significant impact, yeah, in their consequences on the other gender, etc. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them, and, and everybody loves to look good. Nobody likes to look out, go out and look like a tramp, okay? Everyone, man and woman. But women are far more sensitive to that. Not only are they far more sensitive to that, okay, but when they have something of beauty, they have a, a absolute biological genetic drive to show people that. And that is something that maybe men don't understand or don't appreciate, or even some women don't even understand or uh, appreciate. And so when we're thinking like... Um, the interesting thing is I wrote an article once. This is so relevant because I'm on no-fly lists of so many countries, right? And I got an update the other day of how many countries. Now it's like gone to like 45 countries or something, yeah? And someone sent me a report of a, of a block of countries which I'm not allowed in. And uh, 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 thingy, the, the lawyer was able to um, uh, go through some of the arguments that were made. And one of the arguments was an article that I wrote Many years ago, right? Um, and it's, it, it, well, it's not an article, it's on Facebook, but you know, might as well be an article in today's TikTok black generation, yeah? There's literally a couple of paragraphs, yeah? So uh, even I've changed, even I'm calling it an article, you see what I'm saying? So uh, the, 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 uh, it was comparing, it said the hijab versus the beard, right? And I was responding to, at the time, this idea that we don't like to have beards either, but we grow the beard because it's obligatory upon a man to not shave. Not necessarily have a beard that looks like this, but it's obligatory. It's haram for a man to shave. No doubt about that, right? As for what comes after that, then they've got to leave enough so that it's clear that this ain't a nine-to-five shadow, right? Or that he's got a, you know, a couple of days of stubble, but it's something that, that, you know, in an identity kit, if that guy kicked your head in, he had a beard, right? And people will know, right? So just about what Chaudhary's got basically, right? That would, <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that would just about, although to be honest, looking good these days. Looking good. Chaudhary's got a very famous video clip that I need to make viral. 
right? And when he actually decided that after Umrah, that a person should get to shave his head, he thought that they should get everything else shaved as well. I've got to stop saying that, those things, right? Anyway, so um, the, the obligation to grow a beard is... And so they, they kind of, they, they, they juxtapose that obligation, right, against the obligation to wear hijab. And I wrote this article, I go, you have lost your mind if you think that the obligation of wearing hijab is anywhere close to the obligation of wearing, of, hold, of, of, of leaving a beard. And that the effort that goes into it, the groundwork behind it, the levels of reward and permissibility and permissibility. There are some scholars, by the way, minority, that didn't consider it to be obligation to have a beard. There's never been a human scholar in history that has ever questioned the pillarness, the obligation of the hijab and covering of the order for women. To compare the two is absolutely the height of ignorance, right? And that the sacrifice that's needed and the level of iman that's needed to, to, to suppress the desire to show your hair, for example, or to show makeup, for example, or to look beautiful, is something that men will not be able to appreciate and women struggle with. More so than thinking you can make a hijab stylish, I mean, we've done that, right? What, what is the current time? Most of the women are not wearing hijab that wear hijab today. It's just all some kind of flapping around and, you know, everything else is all tight. You can see everything else. And they just thought that it was just covering the head. And even then, they find it so difficult because it doesn't matter. And this is an important tarbiyah lesson for us in our positions of being able to advise our own families and women in our communities when it comes to uh, the, the hijab, that you will never be happy in restyling the hijab. You will, never, you will never get to the final part. If you look at every 10 years, I'm kind of been Islamically aware for three decades. I compare my, my observations in the first decade and my observations in the second decade. And by the way, a decade is too long. Generations now are probably, what, seven years? What do they say in social, sociology now? Is it seven years now? A generation? What's, what's the age gap between, I'm sure you asked, asked it so many times, the, the differentiation between millennial to Gen Z, is, is, it, is it seven years? Ten years? Whatever it is, but it's not actually, I don't think it's 10 years. There's a lot of uh, 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 things. Thank you, Mesa, for putting the article up. She's put the article up. The article that the lawyer said, I've got to delete, and now she's gone and, and uh, thinking. They identified that article, by the way, as the reason why I'm banned, right? Because I said that woman's got to wear hijab. And that's obviously illiberal, anti-democratic, and whatever. And Bajid now told everyone where to find the article. Yeah, thank you very much. So... <laughs> That's another one I've got to now find and get and delete, right? So, um, the, the idea that in each generation, what is the way that I can make this more in tune with my desire to look good? And so, it started to get a bit tighter, for example, or it started to change shape, or it started to, whatever it is. And each time you see that things become tighter, then it goes to a turban, then it goes to an X, then it goes to a Y, or whether it's dupatta and half the head, the point is, it doesn't matter. Now, you know, most girls are wearing either no sleeves or, you know, whatever it is, they've still got something on their head thinking that, yeah, I can, I, I, I'm about to kind of fulfill what my creator actually wants. And they will never, ever be satisfied because they all know that I would still never leave my hair like that. Like nobody would ever actually have their head And even if it was like three quarters showing just um, you know, And you had like a hijab that looked like the Jewish cap Just covering the back part You still wouldn't be happy You still want your hair to come out Because that's what the 
And it's at, that, it's at some point in, a, in life that men and women have got to realize that don't waste your time and don't hurt your head trying to change the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you're a person who can't step up, then just sit down. But don't try to, you know, make it out that you understand and this is permissible, this is allowed and this is, it's not allowed. It's you being weak and you're on a journey and all that kind of behavior. We'll give you all the excuses you want. But don't fool yourself and think that at the end of your particular journey, there's some kind of nirvana that you meet with hijab. It's not happening, right? It's not happening. People who also try to style beards and move with the beards kind of, you know, age uh, uh, according to the time, similar to the hijab uh, style. It's an obligation. And the obligations in life can either be seen as part of this very kind of, you know, beautiful romantic vision of Islam, which I'm telling you now is only going to harm you if you have that mindset, or you just be straight and clear about it. I'm a slave. I just do what I'm told. If I have some fun and I, I can enjoy life whilst being a slave, a massive result. But if I don't, well, guess what? Because I'm a slave, it's not meant to be. And we have that statement very clear that we are, that this dunya is sijnul mu'min, right? And you can't be chilling looking your best in a prison. It just doesn't matter. You can listen. You can change your cell. You can get a good cellmate. You can get some time to yourself, do some reading. You can enjoy the fresh air for an hour and a day. But you're still in prison, right? Don't think that you can suddenly change the entire reality and be in Nirvana and some kind of happy paradise in prison. And that's the mindset. When you keep trying to make the obligations and pillars all fit around you, must be in line with your lifestyle, can't affect your work, can't affect your relationships, can't affect your mindset, then you didn't understand obligations in the first place. You didn't understand the relationship between you and Allah in the first place. You don't understand yeah, and who Allah is and who you are. And when people don't get that, then they'll continue to play around, play around. And as I said, they're only wasting their own time. Eventually, they'll come to an age and they'll then go back to it because they've now finally realized or realized too late or uh, whatever. Anyway, anyway, I think that um, it's important that the reason that scholars didn't give a defined definition of when does ikhtilat become ikhtilat is because there isn't one. The Sharia does not define that. What Sharia does define is what's absolutely haram, and that is isolation or seclusion. So to be alone with a, a man and woman, to be alone, where there's absolutely not only no chaperone, right? Because being alone is not necessarily solved by a third person. The Sharia recognizes that that's not possible all the time to always have a third person. But then there's got to be in that gathering some form of accountability. Open doors, open windows, half yani circular spaces, whatever it is. If you're out, for example, in the, in the open or amongst people and you're speaking to a man and a woman, this is not seclusion. Even if there's, you know, like a hundred meters be uh, uh, between you and you are saying things that nobody else could hear, this is not seclusion. You're out, observable, accountability is being done. And that's like the age-old kind of question of a woman being, picking up an Uber, for example, right? And that's a difficult one. It's a difficult one because, yeah, that is seclusion. You're in a car, it can be locked, you can do things and whatever, whatnot, and people won't be able to tell. And that's why, in general, the scholars do not like a woman catching a taxi alone. And that's the safest position to be held. However, the scholars also recognize it is also difficult legally to say that's haram, haram, haram. Because they will be able to argue that there is not complete, you know, there are windows, it is open, it is yeah, some power, you're, not, you're at the back, you could, blah, blah, blah. And then they bring in the, the, that old uh, chestnut of there's a need and there's a necessity and there's a... And so therefore, we kind of are able to give some options to a woman if she's stuck. If you have no other option, then yeah, you can get your taxi home and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. 
So seclusion is the, is the big red line. But as for the rest of the time, it's common sense. It's intelligence and knowing the nature of people, right? And, and that education or that level of awareness is what will save people. It will save you. And I, I just want to say that. Now, I might have come across in, in this and said, you know, make it out that, you know, we've got to be a bit careful. But I also want to say that I am worried. I am actually worried. Even though I've got enough legal... You might remember at the end of last year that I... Um, I explained in class about that scenario, classic scenario that we all experience when we go to the haram, right, for Umrah or Hajj, where we find that miskina, you know who, or a group of them, who either unwillingly or the hilarious ones, or willingly, not moving, right? And they're in the group of a load of men. And as I said, unwillingly, they just came in, they normally, the husband, you know, has told them, don't you let go of my hand, kind of thing, yeah? I ain't got, you know, and they sit down next to them, and then obviously all the men start, you know, piling around, and they're saying, you know, you know what I mean? Hissing at like she's some kind of cat, right? And then someone will say, you know, sister, haji, blah, 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 call the police, all that kind of thing. So call the police. It's a madness, isn't it? Call the police to get rid of this woman. So the, uh, uh, there are a few things that irritate men as much as that. And that's okay. That's fine. However, it's interesting to look at it from a legal point of view. People get really stressed because they think that the prayer is somehow going to be invalidated. And Sheikh Uthameen answered this question. He goes, is the prayer valid for the woman and for the man if they are surrounding a woman or a group of women? And you would think that that would be absolutely not valid. Yani, you know, there's going to be separate, there's going to be valid. He said, yeah, the prayer is valid. How, how come is the prayer is not valid? What's the evidence that that invalidates the prayer? And he's right. That's the kind of cold, juristic thinking that's needed in certain times, right? That it doesn't invalidate the prayer. It's not good. We've got to make sure that it doesn't happen. But if it happens... It's happened. It's not haram. I can't say it's haram, haram, qat'i, haram. Right? She's not secluded. And this is not good. It's dislike. There's things you've got to have to you know, close your eyes. It's not allowed normally. It's not recommended to keep your eyes closed in salah. Here's an opportunity for you to actually practice this now and close your eyes if you're, this lady's in front of you. Right? There's ways around it. It's not as big as it needs to be. Um, I bring this point up because at the same time, I'm finding within our Islamic circles that... Um, Women in the spirit of accessibility and not wanting to miss out, and especially in circles of learning and programs like the ones that I do and so on, they'll want to be as close as possible to hear and to experience you know, what's being taught, and so they want to sit side by side. And this is not a good habit. This does not have a good ending, right? Even though it's completely understandable, and people will feel that, you know, especially when they're the majority as well, right? A, a lot of the time. And they've really got to understand that the Muslims always understood that distance will never be a negative thing between men and women. Never. It's never a negative thing. Might not be obligatory, but it will never be bad. And women have got to realize that you are not being slighted if you are asked that, that you know, the men sit here, right? And the women will sit behind. In the absence of a barrier, I mean. And that is not only the structure of the, of the jama'ah of the Prophet ﷺ, but I want to say, this is important, that he didn't kind of uh, 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 drill down on this and make it a rule for all of life, right? Because we have so many ahadith that show men and women mixing, talking with one another, uh, him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, conversing with women. So it's clear that that can happen. And in groups and gatherings, even in a restricted area, there'll be men and women milling around, but the milling around is of access and it's not good. And we should try to kind of separate as much as possible and keep that separation. A barrier is always going to be easier and the like, but there was never a barrier at the time of the Prophet. 
And we should always remember that. The people who are, uh, who are not yani, intellectually there will say there's no barrier, there never should be a barrier. And that's people who doesn't know anything about Islam. Right? It's, it's interesting how the companions, even in the absence of very clear directives on how to keep the sexes separate, themselves did things understanding the ethos of the Prophet ﷺ. One example of that is the funeral prayer. When you're praying over the deceased, the fact that you have the man closest and then children and then uh, the, the women, from an imam point of view, I mean, and you're keeping the ladies further back, is something which, as far as I know, according to my knowledge, and I stand to be corrected, never legislated, never legislated by the Prophet ﷺ. But I believe it's a consensus or an action of the majority of the companions. And that goes to show that from their own ethos, they understood that we will continue this. And then later, the scholars then start to then, you know, put suggestions in and, you know, barrier this. And it came afterwards, much afterwards. And when they realized that it was needed, it was something that was needed. Anyway, this is, as you just said, a rabbit hole that you could go down and, you know, never kind of recover from. But um, those are a few of the points that I wanted to uh, share. All right. Um, then the next section that we're going to do something from because we don't have that long. This is now. Uh, let me just read the Arabic. The section that we're doing. فصل ويعذر بترك جمعة وجماعات مريض ومدافع أحد الأخذثين ومن بحضرة الطعام محتاج إليه وخاف وخائف. That's actually we're never going to get to that. So let's just focus on the the three that we can cover today. So this, this final subsection is excuses rescinding the Friday prayer and the congregational prayer. All right, Those excuses that a person can use to not attend the Jama'ah and the Jumu'ah. Okay? One is excused from attending the Friday or congregational prayer when he, number one, is sick. Number two, is holding back urine or feces. That he needs to go to the toilet, basically. And number three, is in the presence of food that he is in need of, is in the presence of food that he is in need of. Let's see what we can uh, cover uh, from this particular section. Uh, Sheikh Uthameen on page 309, right at the very bottom, he says that this little kind of section is really just describing those kind of legitimate excuses for which a person is excused from the congregation prayer. And these are all built upon, مَبْنِيُّونَ yani their, 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 their foundation are a number of verses in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا جَعَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرَجْ in Surah Al-Hajj, verse 78. And Allah did not place difficulty and hardship in, 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 upon you in this religion. right? He did not make it, this deen, to be some kind of mission for you. And also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And Allah wants ease for you and not difficulty for you. Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 185. And um, this... Uh, Overriding principle means that in almost every obligation, if there is a need, then there will be some kind of ease. Because of the maxim, the fiqh maxim, this rule, this, uh, this uh, qaida fiqiyah of al-mashaqqa tajlibu taysir. Al-mashaqqa tajlibu taysir, that difficulty brings ease. Difficulty enables ease. As soon as the situation becomes more tight, we widen it for the people. So this is an important principle, that when you are put into a position of need and necessity, then those kind of things that are normally prohibited or whatever, then become uh, 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 easier to deal with. Sheikh Uthameen's 
ولا شك أن الجمعة أوكل بكثير من الجماعة لإجماع المسلمين على أنها فرض عين And he goes, we need to now look at excuses facing in opposition to not just obligations but very strong obligations He goes, there's a consensus of the Ummah that the Jumu'ah prayer is a fard ain. Fard ain meaning an individual obligation upon every single male, not upon every female. Every single male obligatorily required to attend. Then he says, as for the jama'ah, then he goes, we already discussed that and we spent months discussing that. He goes, our position is, despite the differences of the scholars in the issue, that also the jama'ah to attend is an obligation. We spoke about that. We said that the majority position is that it's sunnah mu'akkadah, but the, the class position in, 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 in adopting a safe approach, certainly from the hadith, it seems that way, and certainly from the Hanbalis and, uh, or Qawl in the Hanbalis and certainly Sheikh Uthameen's position and Ibn Taymiyyah and others it went even further, where they said, you know, some of them said it's a pillar of the prayer, i.e. what that means is that if you didn't pray in the masjid, you can't even pray at home, you lost the prayer, which is a madness actually, right? I mean, that's like a hardcore opinion, but also founded opinion. So, the idea that it's obligatory is something which is well, uh, uh, well held, okay? Um, and here's something useful for the students. He goes, with my opinion, Shaykh Uthameen saying, the Jum'ah is fard, ain, individual obligation. The Jum'ah is fard, ain. He goes, but the emphasis on the two is not the same. And that's an educational point, that things can be fard, things can be wajib, things can, but they're not the same. They're not of the same level. He goes, the way that the jama'ah is emphasized is not like the way that the jumu'ah is emphasized and you therefore cannot put them on the same level. And yet, however, what's very interesting is that both of these obligations, key obligations, the jumu'ah meaning a very emphasized obligation, will be rescinded if you have a legitimate excuse. What are these excuses? The first one is marad. Marad in the Arabic is a word which means uh, deficiency to be deficient in something. When a person is, uh, uh, in a linguistic sense, someone doesn't have the use of a particular function, even though they might not be sick, right? I mean, I'm talking linguistically. This person is maril, right? Or, or, or like a, like a uh, um, I don't know, even an animal, for example, that has lost a particular thing and it can run, but it doesn't have a particular horseshoe, for example. It is deficient in the horseshoe that would allow it to run. But technically, it means someone who's sick, right? And... The problem here is going to be, how do you define sickness? Everybody has different tolerances. Everybody has, you know, different kind of appreciation of what is illness, what's not illness, and the like. However, Sheikh Uthameen is going to now just share a few points of that. Um, he goes that what's intended by sickness is uh, that which causes mashaqqa uh, for that person if they were to go outside and... Pray in the Jama'ah. That's actually a very useful way of looking at it, right? So, for example, we know that someone who suffers mental health problems is sick, is ill, is maril, right? But does going out cause it to become worse or maybe even, ironically, better? You get what I'm saying? So, this person could not use the, the argument of uh, mental health or let me think, of, maybe that's not such a great example. Let's do a broken arm. Broken arm, yeah? Broken arm. In its early parts, first couple of days, very sensitive, moving around, you know, driving a car, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, that's some reason I'm not going to Jama'ah. But after like, you know, it's now in plaster, been three, four weeks, in a sling, proper broke, yeah. Uh, what's the difference between you praying on a chair at home 
I'm praying in a chair in masjid. You're going to the masjid, doesn't touch it in any way. This is not the legitimate legal form of marad yet. Obviously, what's more serious than a broken arm, right? So it's all contextual. And on what basis would uh, these excuses or someone being sick, for example, be an excuse to not attend the prayer? The evidences are Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Taghabun, verse 16, Fear Allah as much as you can. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 286, That Allah does not burden a soul more than what its wusr is, more than its ability, more than its uh, 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 ability. Yeah. وقوله, uh, uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's statement in Surah Al-Fatih, verse 17, ليس للأعمى حرج ولا على العارج حرج ولا على المريض حرج and there is no blame upon the uh, 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 the blind the disabled or al-marid uh, the sick right there is no blame upon them that and this is of course in the context of jihad that they go out with you right that they not they don't they don't they don't go out with you so the blind one that's an excuse the a'raj the disabled one that's an excuse the one who is temporarily sick, ill, marid, that's an excuse as well. Also, the Prophet his uh, statement, the authentic hadith in Bukhari, If I command you with something, then do as much as you can of it. If I command you to do something, then do as much as you can of it. So there's clearly some ability uh, 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 space. And if your ability does not allow you to spread to do that thing properly like you might normally would, then that's something which is okay. That's number four, that's four evidences so far. Fifth evidence. And then Nabi We know that the Prophet as narrated by Bukhari, that when he became ill, he didn't attend the congregation. This was famous last days, and at that time he commanded Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to lead the prayer. Well, he didn't command Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, he said, tell Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Uh, let him know that he is to come, uh, lead the prayer. Then we know, obviously, with Aisha, what happened uh, uh, after that. And by the way, Prophet had a really long way to walk, right? To get to the masjid, right? Okay? Probably literally a few steps. He's living next to the masjid, right? So therefore, clearly, this is a, a concession that is not, is not something that you need to be, you know, overthinking, saying that oh, it's only because, you, you know, you, 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 you should only be given... You know, uh, the Sheikh uh, Walid's uh, timeless statement, timeless statement, Sheikh Walid Bissuni, that sometimes we are more religious than the religion itself, right? The deen itself tells you something, and you're trying to find some kind of reason to not allow it, right? We're saying that the Prophet ﷺ said that, you know, it's an excuse, you don't need to go, yeah, but we've got cars today, yeah, but, you know, we can do this, yeah, bro, just relax, man. Right? That's the, that's the concession. Don't need to forensically analyze it and make a decision on who the, the thing is legally available for or not. That's the fifth. The sixth evidence is the statement of uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. This is just Sheikh Uthameen's evidences. Yeah? Um, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an, he said, لَقَدْ رَأَيْتُنَا وَمَا يَتَخَلَّفُ عَنِ الصَّلَاءِ إِلَّا مُنَافِقٌ قَدْ عُلِمَ نِفَاقُهُ أَوْ مَرِيضٌ That... Um, we knew ourselves, we used to look at ourselves We knew our situation, we saw our situation And nobody would miss the prayer except a munafiq No one would miss the prayer in the masjid, meaning with us Except a munafiq or someone who was ill So they understood 
that illness was a standard acceptable reason to leave the prayer. And as I said, don't need to analyze you know, what level you are sick or not sick. Remember the rule that by going to the masjid, it harms you, right? Now, harms you is subjective, obviously. And harms you has levels. In the books of fiqh, in the detailed versions of, of, of this, we'll find that even the one who fears becoming ill, right, is acceptable if the fear is founded. Think of the pandemic and, and the like, all right? That was something that was actually real. Then after a while, it became a blag, right? And that's important for people to, you know, be responsible about. Some things that will apply and other times it won't apply. Now for someone to be stating that kind of statement would be really kind of be, you know, concerned, you know, where's this person, you know, where, where they at, you know, what's happening here. So, uh, and likewise, um, I don't want you to be thinking that there's some kind of time limit that I have some time off from the masjid because it's entirely contextual. There's no set time. There's no minimum injury. There's no maximum injury. It's all about you being aware that anything that's going to cause you to become uh, uh, recover to top form, right, to your normal, usual top form, and it's being affected by you going out, okay, maybe one prayer, or maybe one day, maybe two days, then that's a legitimate excuse for you not to attend. Now, on the side point, we should also tell ourselves that emphasizes again how important the obligatory prayer is, how important the congregational prayer is, that there's got to be such a clear reason to not go. All right? So um, that's the first thing. Uh, a lama always with the, the, the kids. What if the man has kids who are out of control and the mother is out of the country? I think someone could be on a trip soon. Um, is he excused from attending the masjid? Yes, I believe that this person is excused from attending the masjid. Normally, what a person could say, a person could say and say that, well, why is she going out the country for, right? And that could be, you know, uh, it's not actually as flippant or, or ignorant a statement as you may think. The woman's got to put some effort into thinking, how can I minimize this kind of uh, disruption? Can I, you know, do it like this? Can I get someone in? Can I blah, 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 can I blah, blah? And then work out a solution. And if you can't, then it is. Also, it's a bit weird for someone who doesn't go to the masjid regular to be busting this one as well, right? That's also something we've got to be aware of. You know, we've seen all the tricks from people. That's why people using yeah, different excuses. Yeah, let's do some, uh, yeah, let's uh, do questions now. Um, if you can uh, identify what I've not answered, uh, Taymour, yeah. I think so. I do think so. Uh, that there is a, uh, a point. There's no doubt that that's the case in something which is, uh, is, is in fact obligatory to maintain quarantine for those are in a uh, uh, infective kind of state, right? Where does the fiqh kind of need to be activated? With something like exactly like you gave the example, a cold, right? Um, imagine that we were using that. And this person's going around day and night speaking to all kinds of people that are sniffing and cold and X and Y and Z. And a cold is part of life, right? And I don't want to get into the, I don't want to put my medical hat on too much and you know, say that one of the reasons why people got so ill in 22, if you noticed, it was a year of hardcore, because people's immune systems were completely miskeen. They've been so, you know, and these colds and these things, they, they make a person strong. They, they you know, they, they lessen a proper infection when it does happen. And so um, I think that there's absolutely no doubt that a person has a significant infective condition. They're not allowed to be putting others at risk. 
they can put masks on, this, that, whatever, but if they know that it's not going to protect other people, then they shouldn't go. But it's very questionable if it's colds, you know, some, some form of rhinovirus, basic you know, upper respiratory infections that are going around all the time, that are inevitable to, in terms of spread. I think that's questionable. I think it's questionable. And I'm not saying it's haram or halal, but a person will use their, their own kind of, uh, 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 you know, whatever. We'll take questions on this because we're going to finish on this point. Uh, what happens if the ladies leave? Oh, we're going back here. Yeah. What happens if the ladies leave and then the imam realizes he has made a mistake? Is their prayer valid as they are unaware of it? It's a very, very good question. So if the ladies... So when we're talking about ladies leaving, it's not like something which is like, you know... Yeah, I mean, there's time to normally get this. thing. So this will be, this will be fixed, right? However, if a person has left and they do not know, that prayer is absolutely fine. All right? If they know, that's when the scholars differ. So meaning that they got told, I mean, right? Should they pray again? Some scholars said you got to pray again. Others said that why would they need to pray again? What's their problem, right? Should they do something else in terms of themselves? And I have to say that my heart is with the opinion that they do nothing, right? If they followed the instruction, they didn't run out, they didn't leg it out in an unnatural kind of way. They weren't negligent themselves in that act. And I believe that there's nothing upon them. Otherwise, of course, the safest position is them to pray again and, you know, this kind of uh, uh, kalam. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is popular amongst Muslims that they believe that the beard is sunnah. The beard length, it being a fistful, is what is sunnah. But to actually have a recognizable beard for a male is obligatory. It's not in the Quran, no. This is the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu that let the beards grow. All right, let the beards grow. Another hadith and be different from the Jews and the Christians who, from a religious point of view, don't uh, 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 let it uh, leave. Any other uh, questions here? All right. Um, uh, Zainab, she's saying, I have a, I've wondered about the females who fought in battles in the early times of Islamic history. I don't think any scholar, even those that are most strictest, are going to ever say, because it's impossible, to say that men and women can't be in the same place at the same time. This is not necessarily intermixing. People have got to walk and so on. We have etiquette that women should walk to a side, men should walk to a side. Men should always be aware of you know, people going around. Women should as well. But that general, there should be separation. When there needs to be, you know, people, if there's one exit and we can't separate easily and we have to go out, then so be it. Uh, there can be some common sense kind of moves, you know, where we allow people to kind of go forward once. I'm remembering something happened to me about 10 years ago. I was in Egypt. Um, yeah, it was about, yeah, 10 years ago. A Spinney's is, a, is, a, is, a, is like a Western kind of supermarket. And... Um, I got my stuff and it was like two, three items, I think, like some juice or something like that. And I walk in and uh, uh, so I walk towards the um, counter, the, the till, the till. There's a guy on the till, right? And the queue is, <laughs> the queue is a queue, men, women, you know, it's a supermarket, right? So there's a couple of guys and then there's a woman and then I think I want to say me and then a couple of people behind me, whatever. Anyway, the first guy goes, I want to say maybe three men, then the woman or whatever. Anyway, the first guy's paying. Then the woman, she steps out and she kind of like, so imagine that this is the till, 
and we're all queued up like this. She goes like that and she kind of stands here like that. Right? Okay. So, you know, there was like, the rest of us are like, and she basically then kind of, you know, puts her thing down. The, the two guys said nothing. They were Egyptian. Nothing. Then the girl behind me joined her. Then the other girl behind her joined her. I was like, right. The kids realized this is very important. The two Egyptians said, like, I was looking at their faces. They said, not a thing. I'm the one who's really stressed out by this. <laughs> and the Egyptians were calm. They were calm, right? Then these girls, they went uh, uh, through. And then the guy, one guy went through. Then another lady comes at the side. And then another couple then stand. And I'm like, so I go to the guy and I go to the, to, what's happening here, bro? What's happening? I, 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 I came, I thought it'd be two minutes. I've been now 12 minutes standing here, right? This is a fast checkout thing with only like six items. I'm taking liberties here, right? And the guy turned around, he goes, no, no, we always serve the women separately. They stand separately. And what was really interesting, they were not practicing. They're all clean shaving. I'm the guy with, you know, Molvi, whatever, whatnot. And I was thinking to myself, they're probably expecting me to be defending this act, right? Because, you know, standing in a, in a mixed line is not, conducive to the Islamic ethos of whatever. And so therefore, I, 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 was, I was thinking about it. It's like they, they, they're actually saying, this is how we treat our women. They should, they should stand by themselves and you know, maintain that distance and whatever. And the Egyptians, culturally, fully accepting of it. Now I'm telling you this guy in front of me, not a, a, a statement of words. Guy behind me, nothing. I was the only one complaining. And I said, Habib, there's bloody limits to this game. How long am I going to stand here? Every woman that comes is going to keep going? What kind of nonsense is this? You know what I'm trying to say? And that's the religious guy, the Maulvi, who's going to be telling you, listen, this is haram, yani, all this mixing, let's have a separate women's queue. And I'm like, down with the flipping separate women's queue. <laughs> right? What the hell is this women's queue business? And that's the, the, that's the ironic situation that we are in where we try to artificially create in our minds what is ikhtilat and how do we avoid ikhtilat and when do we avoid ikhtilat? And that's where I think the Muslims not only have struggled, they do struggle and will always struggle. And the people who come out of it with egg on their face are the people who are definitive in their statements of saying it's haram ikhtilat or it's halal ikhtilat. But rather, it's a nuanced situation and there are evidences to the absolute rafters like the battles and the people and the X and the Y and, you know, uh, we, we could see the ankles of the women, you know, as they lifted up. They did, bro, there's evidences out there you wouldn't believe that, can, that tell you about how they knew the girls, knew their body parts, knew their things, how they used to make poems about the women that they would see in the streets and the like and whatever. And her ankle was like the moon and it was the, the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. Bro, if you not get my poetic mode, don't stop me then. I was teaching some ghazals that you would not believe. No, no, okay, not infinitely, okay, khalas, khalas. So, so, and then the other way around as well. Famous statement, Yanni, from the scholars that, you know, uh, back in the day we were like this, but you guys would be turned on by just a finger. That's, Yanni, the, 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 the Salaf saying that. That back in the days it was like this, but now, different, well, we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be aware of sexuality and, 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 and the like. Anyway, I think we should, uh, um, okay, this is quickly, was a really enjoying time of iftar. Oh, this is, uh, um, we haven't come to that. That's next week, uh, Aminur. Okay, that's next week, inshallah. Regarding not leaving uh, until the Imam gets up, 
What if the Imam has a habit of giving long speeches after the prayer? This is important, what Maryam asks, okay? The not leaving is not the issue. Let me make it very clear. It's the turning round which is the permission. Not the long, not until he goes. This is a mistake. You don't need to stay. What if the Imam has no intention of going? You're sitting there, whatever, whatnot. Then he turns around, he goes, You've been here for a long time. He goes, Yeah, I'm waiting for you to leave. He goes, I don't leave. I stay here until Asr. You know, so obviously you're not qaid to him, but you are qaid, you are restricted until he turns around and indicates that, okay, prayer's done, prayer's good, on your way, right? He's kind of delayed it, allowed the ladies to get off, allowed any fitness to kind of decrease, and now you can uh, get off. What about a skin uh, disease? He intentionally misses Jum'ah, especially at times where skin sheds a lot because he fears this leads to distraction to the rest of the Muslim. This is probably context-based, you know, um, uh, depends on how serious that actually is. And... Uh, temporary is the key If something that he knows That is only a bad moment Then maybe there's space for that But if that's going to become His weekly excuse To not miss the, to, to miss the Jum'ah Then that needs to be revised At the, at the higher kind of medical level Consultant level And we, we're clear that this is a real problem And then obviously A ruling will be based upon that Yes uh, So, so, so uh, Hannah said that the question for the sake of the, of the recording is that, uh, you know, if you, a man says that, you know, ikhtilat is haram, and then there's that, that whole kind of that vibe, and they become very kind of aggressive, or not even regressive, but they become very inconsiderate of women, and that, you know, they insist on certain things. I mean, it's the same the other way around as well, right? Ignorance and ignorance, whether they turn around and said that, you know, why are you being separate? Why are you, I, I, you know... It, how you deal with it is how you deal with it. You either have the authority and the confidence to be able to educate a person and say, brother, I respect you, your your ghira, but there are levels. It doesn't have to impact upon mine. And, you know, it got to come from an educated point of view. Or you get someone that you know that can tell that person, bro, just calm down a little bit. This is, you know, whilst recognizing that the asal, that the actual status quo, the, de- the, the, sorry, not status quo, the default position is general bird is like minimizing contact and minimizing that so that it's seen as out of the norm if we are interacting or close or whatever. Not necessarily haram, but there's an exception kind of going on to the general rule. I think that there are certain areas in Islam where it's important for us to adopt a basic kind of ethos. It helps us in our mindset to then problems. And the general ethos when it comes to men and women is distance, not the other way around. Right? Unlike, for example, in food, where the asl is that it's all halal, it's all good until something is haram. Actually, the asl when it comes to gender interactions is not that it's all good until we see a problem, it's that there's a problem. There's a problem, so you're staying away and you're coming to meet and talk and interact if there's a need. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows, uh, and this, this, this is the problem here, which Usman uh, 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 here states. There appears to be statements from classical scholars. Not appears, there are statements that say gender mixing is prohibited bidatihi in of itself, which is nonsensical because no scholar would ever say that because they, those very same scholars will give contradictory statements to show that, you know, where men and women are together for some reason or not. It's impossible, well, I mean, my, my opinion, to categorically say something is absolute haram when it's clear that men and women have been involved in speaking and interacting and so on. 
but rather the, those statements need to be taken in the context that those scholars themselves will say something that's different because they recognize, those scholars, that there are caveats to this. But yes, that the basic principle is indeed, as much distance as possible, division and uh, barriers as much as possible. Absolute last question. Yes. For those people that are not obligated to perform Jum'ah, then that's something else. But in a place which is not seen as a masjid or a, uh, 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 an area for the community and it has restrictions, then I don't believe that it's obligatory for them to then to uh, establish the Jum'ah. They can pray Dhuhr for that time. They should get all the people involved, like you know, men and those that know the, the rules. And they will put pressure upon the school and teach you how to put pressure upon the school to supply that right for Jum'ah. But in a school, if the Jum'ah cannot be established for whatever reason, then that person has to pray the Dhuhr prayer. Because it's, it's clear that we can't have our children, you know, uh, not coming out of school or being refused grades because they every Friday come out for Jum'ah. That's not yani, how uh, the, the scholars uh, work. Hanna, what did we say? We said, absolute last question. But for those that do want to ask any further questions, then after Salah, um, up here, is it? Is it up here? Okay, I'll, I'll return up here, inshallah, and then we can uh, speak a bit further then, but we're going to, because salah is being established right now. And yeah, we can speak after salah. All right? Barakallahu feekum wa jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Wa astaghfirukallahumma wa atubu ilayk. Wa salam alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Just that X in the corner. That one, yep, right in your finger, and then end.